0: From Windburg to Erie, Cowder's to Carlisle, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Pennsylvania lags most other states in competing for new businesses and jobs. But efforts are underway in the General Assembly to promote a pro-growth agenda. David Taylor and our Capitol Watch crew discuss those efforts with State Senator Joe Pittman. And protests and violence are the go-to tactic for left-wing activists who lose public policy battles. I'll have a town hall commentary on the left's Summer of Rage. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capitol Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. In a party-line decision, Pennsylvania's activist state Supreme Court has ruled that Act 77, which allows no-excuse mail-in balloting, is constitutional. As it has consistently done in the past, the court's Democratic justices ruled in favor of Governor Tom Wolfe and overturned a Commonwealth court ruling that held Act 77 to be a violation of the state's constitution. Writing the majority opinion, Justice Christine Donahue wrote the legislature has the power to set election rules and is not restricted in allowing no-excused mail-in balloting. Mail-in balloting was approved by a Republican-controlled majority, which has since come to deeply regret the move, and some lawmakers had sought to have the law invalidated as unconstitutional. The court's ruling means mail-in balloting will be in place for this November's general election. Democrats continue to outnumber Republicans in Penn's Woods by about 540,000 voters, but that lead is quickly eroding. The GOP has slashed that margin by over 40,000 voters in recent months, as Democrat voters switch to Republican in significantly larger numbers than Republicans turned Democrat. Neither party has a majority of states' voters, as minor party and independent voters comprise about 15% of the electorate. Following a hotly contested nine-way primary, the GOP is uniting behind state Senator Doug Mastriano, who will face off against Democrat Josh Shapiro in the race for governor. Shapiro, who is the state's attorney general, was unopposed in the primary. This past week, all but one of the state's Republican U.S. representatives issued a joint endorsement of Mastriano. The only holdout, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, who told the media he's not yet sat down to discuss the campaign with Mastriano. Fitzpatrick, who represents a suburban Philadelphia district, has frequently sided with Democrats on key issues, making him an outlier among the state's congressional delegation. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Earlier this summer, the Pennsylvania legislature took the first step toward improving Pennsylvania's economic competitiveness, by beginning a phase-down of corporate taxes. But that's just the start of enacting a pro-growth agenda that will attract new businesses and jobs to the Commonwealth. State Senator Joe Pittman of Indiana County joins David Taylor of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation for a Capital Watch Roundtable discussion.
1: David? David? And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. Here with me in the studio, Steve Bloom, Vice President of... Commonwealth Foundation. Steve, how are you? I am well. Pleasure to be here, David. Outstanding. And Rebecca Euler, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca, thanks for being on the show.
2: Great to be back again, Dave. Thanks.
1: Well, as we've been discussing in previous programs, the Pennsylvania state budget is in place and that rather shockingly, we we made some progress on some important points pointing Pennsylvania towards a a more pro-growth future and to discuss that more fully I'm very pleased to welcome our special guest from out there in Jimmy Stewart country, Indiana County, State Senator Joe Pittman. Joe, thanks for being on the program. David, thank you for having me. So let's let's start off with the big piece. This is a heavy lift that, that we've been working towards for many years. Pennsylvania's corporate net income tax rate of 9.99%, one of the highest in the country, and that the the budget included not just a path to a phase down, but also that uh, our legislative allies managed to knock down all the different poison pills that Governor Wolf had put forward with every previous iteration of tax relief. Can you tell the listeners, how did all that go?
3: Well, this was a huge development, as you pointed out. The reality is, for the last eight years, the Republican majorities in the state Senate and the state House have restrained Governor Wolf's insatiable appetite to spend, And as a result of that restraint, we found ourselves with a significant budget surplus as we concluded this fiscal year. And that surplus allowed us to take some very significant steps in this budget, pro-growth steps. And one of the most significant of that was the phase down of the employer-crushing, job-killing tax known as the corporate net income tax we're beginning that phase-down, we've made a commitment to a continued phase-down that will truly make Pennsylvania highly competitive, certainly among our neighboring states in the Northeast, but really every state in the country. And at the end of the day, we need employers to grow and come to Pennsylvania because it's fundamental to our overall well-being as a commonwealth. And so this was actually, I think, a very sound budget, a very solid budget, And the CNI reduction was a big piece
1: of that progress. And with the phase down, we're going to live to see the day 4.99 percent, which will be, as the senator said, very competitive with even the the highest performing states in the country.
4: Thank you, David. And and Senator Pittman, I wanted to ask you, the, the CNI, obviously, hugely important with very wide ranging impact for Pennsylvania's future as a state and our competitiveness with with other states in terms of tax policy but there were some other key tax policies that were adjusted as well that primarily affect our smaller businesses in Pennsylvania the mom and pop shops and while the fiscal impact may not be so large as the cni reduction there's still an important impact for our most important the most important piece of our our business community which is the small businesses that make up over half of of all businesses and, and business jobs in Pennsylvania and that would be the uh, the work you did to enact finally the 1031 exchange, like-kind exchange tax treatment for small businesses. I especially thank you because when I was a state rep back in in 2016, 2015, when I was still a member of the General Assembly, I had actually sponsored that bill, and we'd never got it over the finish line. So thank you for getting it over the finish line. And if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about what that does.
3: Well, Steve, to your point, small businesses are the absolute backbone, particularly of rural Pennsylvania. I represent a very rural district. I'm very proud of the family-owned businesses that that really drive our economy. And there are other provisions, like what you indicated, the like-kind exchange being chief among them, that allows reinvestment by employers, particularly small businesses, uh, from Basically, the transaction of, of capital uh, exp- uh, expenses, expenses, real estate expenses, things of that nature. And so it's a significant shift, and that was part of the comprehensive effort to make us more economically competitive and to encourage investment. You know, a lot of times I think we lose focus of the fact that the more you tax income and the more you cause disinvestment through excessive taxation, the greater it depresses the economy and it sinks all boats. And we're talking about lifting all boats here because at the end of the day, you can't have family sustaining jobs without employers. And thankfully, after all of these years and in, in the governor's desire to um, put um, tricks in some of the tax reform proposals, we finally, at the end of his term, convinced him to have a straight-up conversation about making some pro-growth adjustments to our tax code. And the like-kind exchange was another element of that.
2: Yeah. And just to follow up on that, also really appreciate those small business components of the budget deal that was reached because 97% of trucking companies are small businesses. And I'm sure, as you know, in your district, Senator, um, you said that uh, the small businesses are, are the ones that drive the economy. Well, quite literally, it's the trucking companies, small businesses <laughs> that are driving the economy. So really appreciate that. And the light kind exchange bill, and thank you, Steve, because he really was the one who uh, sponsored that bill, got it started, years ago finally got it over the finish line there also was a section 179 expensing component of the the budget deal that passed which is also going to help small businesses out a lot with increasing the expensing uh, that they're able to do more in line with what larger companies can do here in the state so we really appreciate that too I was wondering if you could talk more about some of the other things that that were a part of the deal that was signed in the budget and that's some of the transparency aspects of it. With the the unemployment compensation fund, this is a big one for trucking companies and for infrastructure generally, moving the state police out of the motor license fund, which we think is really important because motor license funds should really be spent on infrastructure. So we're happy to see that start to happen. So can you talk about some of those other things that that were done as well?
3: Sure, Rebecca. First and foremost, uh, we put our fiscal house in order in a way that we've not seen in this commonwealth in decades we actually doubled the size of our rainy day fund our piggy bank for lack of a better term we now have a five billion dollar rainy day fund savings account built into our budget that's about forty two days of operating as a commonwealth and that's a taxpayer protection we are funding the state police increasingly through our general fund there's been a time where we've used a lot of our gas tax revenue to fund the state police obviously our state police deserve every penny of support that we can provide them but the reality is the motoring public expects that the taxes they pay which are already extremely high should go to ensure proper infrastructure and we took a significant step in that direction we corrected many of the borrowings that occurred in the past the unemployment compensation fund what's known as the underground storage tank indemnification fund. We've paid those accounts back. We've stabilized those accounts. We've right-sized how we pay Medicaid payments to show actual fiscal year expenses, which was another significant measure. And so all of these things are to the great benefit of the Pennsylvania taxpayer because at the end of the day, unlike our friends at the federal government, we cannot print money We cannot deficit spend. We must balance our budget. And I think what we did here, truly in a bipartisan fashion, was quite historic. The key is to ensure that those elected in November are equally committed to ensuring this kind of taxpayer protection and to ensuring that the phase-out, such as what we did with the corporate net income tax, continues in the years ahead as scheduled.
1: You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host, David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, Steve Bloom from Commonwealth Foundation, Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, and our special guest, State Senator Joe Pittman. So, Senator, one of the struggles that we have with budgeting in Pennsylvania is that we have – What is described as a structural deficit, which means that our mandatory spending increases every year more than than the natural growth of the economy and the resulting receipts to the state treasury. So when we focus on a pro growth agenda for Pennsylvania, like this is urgently needed if we're going to get the Commonwealth back on a path Towards a more stable future because we have many folks in their retirement years who are no longer no longer working and that we don't have enough of the younger folks who are still in their productive years building businesses building their families paying taxes and that to take these kinds of steps to encourage Investment, growth, business startups, we need this if we're going to build out that population of of working-age folks so that this structural deficit closes.
3: You're absolutely right. We are an aging demographic here in Pennsylvania. All you have to do is look at our census numbers over the last several decades, the fact that we've lost representation in Congress, we continue to lose our U.S. representatives in numbers. We lost another one just in this last sentence, census. And that's all indicative of of our aging demographics.
4: Senator Pittman, another accomplishment that uh, certainly uh, my colleagues at the Commonwealth Foundation and I are deeply grateful for and uh, one of the most important gains in this new budget is the expansion of the caps on a couple of our key school choice programs in Pennsylvania, the Educational Improvement Tax Credit Program, Opportunity scholarship, tax credit. And what you guys did, a 125 million dollar expansion of the caps on donations that come from corporations and businesses to fund those programs and they get a tax credit. and that allows many, many kids, literally tens of thousands of kids who are trapped by their zip code in failing or poorly performing public schools an opportunity to get out of those schools and into a school where their families' needs can be met and they can receive a good education education that every Pennsylvanian really and truly deserves. If you can talk a little bit about the importance of school choice, I know it's important to you personally, uh, but the importance of the accomplishment of this record $125 million expansion of a key program.
3: Steve, I appreciate you bringing that up. I think it's a program that has not been highlighted enough and you're right, I believe at the end of the day Parents have the ultimate responsibility for their child's education. And when you have the ultimate responsibility for your child's education, that means you should have the opportunity to help decide the best method in which your child should be educated. And that's what the EITC program does. And it's it's driven not only for scholarships but also in pre pre K support for preschool and there's also an element that does allow uh, public schools through foundational efforts to become more innovative and creative in the methods in which they provide education as well and so it's it's a critical component and what it also does is it allows our employers to make those investments into our students because ultimately you know, we all need a quality workforce for the future. We've spent a lot of time talking about creating jobs, but we need to have that workforce that's ready to go. And being able to be ready to go is allowing parents and their children to figure out the best method in which they can be prepared. And that's what the EITC program does. And as you pointed out, Steve, it's been a long time program in this commonwealth, and, it, and it's so popular that we continue to increase the credits. And the credits are being driven by the demand for uh, engagement in the program. And so that was another significant step in this budget, and part of the reason why I chose to support the entire package.
2: Could you talk about the energy resources that Pennsylvania has and how we're poised to take advantage of that from an economic growth standpoint?
3: Well, the key is to look at what's happening in Europe right now. You know, Europe is being brought to its knees because for years now it has been essentially funding the thuggery of Putin because it's relied on Russian natural gas and Russian natural resources to continue to uh, provide their energy while masking over the fact that they have no energy independence. And so if if anybody refuses to recognize the need to have energy independence as part of our national security let alone our economic interests, they need to take a good, hard look at what's happening right now in the Ukraine and in Europe. And the resources that we have beneath our feet, and I say this sincerely and I fundamentally believe that they are God-given natural resources. They are put here beneath our feet for a responsible use and production to ensure that we have cheap, accessible, and clean energy that allows us to have this economic and national security independence. It's been one of the biggest battles with the Wolf administration that we've had over the last several years, and it needs to be a primary focus as the voters consider who should be our next governor. And it needs to be an individual that is going to embrace our natural resources.
1: Well, and Senator, we thank you for your your leadership on that, because, uh, again, mobilizing Pennsylvania's energy opportunity is I would argue our best shot at really making Pennsylvania a national leader economically again, and that it isn't only the, the harvesting of the energy and using it for fuel, but also the, the natural gas byproducts as feedstocks for manufacturing. We just got news that the shell plant in Beaver County, the construction is complete, which means now it's time to turn that plant operational, and that when it starts cranking out, polyethylene, which is a a feedstock for manufacturing of every kind of plastic, rubber, styrofoam, paint glaze, you name it, it's going to create a real new industry for Pennsylvania. Could you just talk about the over the horizon stuff, what this energy opportunity really can mean for P.A.?
3: Well, if we continue to embrace it, it it will be absolutely transformative in terms of the type of economic opportunity we have. You know, our energy production and our our production of electricity has evolved over time. The district I represent, for example, has the last three coal-fired power plants in our Commonwealth. And I recognize that the coal-fired production of electricity has been on the downside because it's an older technology, Natural gas has come into the market in a big way, and it's, it's a, currently a cheaper, cleaner method of producing electricity. But we also have to understand that we need resiliency in the grid, and we need a variety of sources of power. Because yes, sir. if you look again at what is happening, again, in Europe, this, this issue with natural gas is driving up the cost, the price of natural gas, to levels that we've not seen in a decade. And that's a big part of why you're seeing the cost of electricity increase, not to mention the governor's ill-fated attempt to put us into RGGI, which is a whole other topic, but it's bottom line, it's a tax on the production of electricity. But that is why there needs to be counterbalances in the market. It's why there needs to be a variety and a resilient grid. And we have it all here in Pennsylvania. There is no single form of electricity production that is without weakness. We need them all, and we have them all, and the key is to embrace them all. And this cracker plant is going to use those natural gas resources, and if we can incentivize the manufacturing of other products and dropping the corporate net income tax is one way to do it, uh, we could see an absolute renaissance, particularly here in western Pennsylvania.
1: Well, that's the world we want to live in, Senator, and we we thank you for, for helping to point us in that direction. We're out of time but thank you so much for being with us, and and Senator, where can people go to learn more about you and your your office and the work that you're doing?
3: I appreciate it, Dave. It's been an honor to be with you today. SenatorPittman.com is my website. It's the best place to be able to find information about my office and the area I represent. I'm also on Facebook, Senator Joe Pittman. Look me up there as well. Uh, but it's an honor to serve the district that I represent here in western Pennsylvania and to be part of hopefully moving the uh, Commonwealth forward. And David, Rebecca, Steve, thank you for your advocacy.
4: Steve, where can folks track you down? They can visit CommonwealthFoundation.org on the
1: web. Outstanding. Rebecca, where can people find you?
2: They can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at PMTA.org.
1: Outstanding. And as ever, find me online at PAManufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network at 830 on Sunday mornings with PMA Perspective. From Steve, Rebecca, and me, thanks again to Senator Pittman. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry.
0: Thank you, David. Congressman Lee Zeldin, the Republican nominee for governor of New York, stood on a stage at a Veterans of Foreign Wars post when a man jumped up on the platform and quickly approached him. Clutching an unknown weapon, the assailant lunged at the congressman, who wrestled free from his grasp and escaped injury. Weeks earlier, a man armed with a gun and a knife who had previously threatened U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was arrested near the justice's home. He told police he was there to kill Kavanaugh. Left-wing violence against Republican candidates and officials is on the upswing. Both of these incidents received scant attention in the legacy news media, but they would have dominated the headlines for days, if not weeks, had the perpetrators been the right-wing extremists upon whom the media likes to focus. Political violence emanating from any point on the political spectrum is, of course, unacceptable, and a threat to our republic. It is therefore concerning that protests, which all too often have turned violent and or stoked the rage that led to the attack on Zeldin and the attempt on Justice Kavanaugh's life, have become the preferred course of action for the left. Let us not forget that in many cities, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 turned violent. Apologists in the legacy media continually referred to them as largely peaceful protests, Even as police were attacked, stores were looted and buildings were set ablaze. Left-wing ideology is, of course, steeped in entitlement. It should come as no surprise, then, that when left-wing adherents don't get their way in matters of public policy, their response is to flood into the streets in a public brat fit to stomp their feet and denounce those who failed to satisfy their every whim. So we have seen protests become the go-to tactic of the left. Don't like the Dobbs rolling? Take to the streets. Want to restrict Second Amendment rights? Take to the streets. Don't like police arresting lawbreakers? Take to the streets. Don't want broccoli for dinner? Take to the streets. The left's protest culture has become greatly aided and abetted by the legacy news media. Even smaller community newspapers run out with camera and notepad if four or five pro-abortion protesters show up in the courthouse square. Protests for a left-wing cause? Media coverage is ensured. It's even better made for the camera theater to get arrested while protesting. In their zeal to protect women's ability to kill preborn children, more than a dozen Democratic members of Congress were arrested while taking part in a pro-abortion protest. Police failed to slap the cuffs on publicity-crazed Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was reduced to faking her own arrest. While the left has engaged in a summer-long made-for-television spectacle over Donald Trump's actions or inactions during the infamous January 6 riots—spoiler alert, season-ending cliffhanger to air the week before midterm Election Day—there has been little to no denunciation of violence by the left. Worse, high-ranking Democrats have actually suborned violence with their inflammatory rhetoric. Following the leak of the draft Dobbs decision, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer actually stood in front of the Supreme Court building and threatened, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you. Congress then dragged its collective feet for weeks on providing additional security to the Supreme Court justices, only doing so after the failed attempt on Justice Kavanaugh's life. They did, however, approve extra money to provide security for themselves. Even the annual congressional baseball game was the target of protesters demanding more action on so-called climate change. The game is a uniquely bipartisan event to raise money for charity. It is not the first time it has been targeted. During a practice session in 2020, Congressman Steve Scalise was shot and seriously wounded by a crazed Bernie Sanders supporter. All of this as an amazing number of Americans view some level of political violence as acceptable. Researchers at the University of California, Davis, conducted a survey which found one in five U.S. adults say political violence is justified in at least some circumstances. Three percent believe that political violence is usually or always justified. Democratic socialist policies have plunged America into a recession with skyrocketing inflation and soaring energy prices. This failure has deprived the left of cogent arguments for its positions, reducing its adherence to street protest. The Biden administration and Congress are doubling down on failed policies, which means the rage of the left is likely to worsen in the months and years ahead. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WRNN-FM and WNAE-FM in Warren, Along with WCHEAM in Westchester, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh all of whom have helped to underwrite the cost of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.